and whole life is like owning your house and building equity in it. What we do and what we use for these privatized banking systems is absolutely positively not the whole life you think you know about. It is so different, so different in the way it's built, constructed, engineered. You're listening to Ice Cream with Investors, a podcast that is dedicated to teaching you how to better invest your money so that you can live a more intentional life. I'm your host, Matt Four, and it is my goal to teach and empower you to remove the roadblocks to your financial success. All right, welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, we have Chris Noggle on the phone. And Chris used to be a former professional snowboarder turned money mongol. He has spent his life dedicated to being America's number one money mentor. In his career, he's built and owned over 19 companies, with some of his businesses being featured on Forbes, ABC, House Hunters, and even has his own TV show on HGTV at one point. He currently is the founder of Money Schools and is a money mentor at The Money Multiplier. The real reason I'm excited to have Chris on the show, though, is because I had stalled in my journey financially, and I was looking for a different way to kind of break into that next level. And it was a show that Chris did on how to become your own bank that helped me break through that ceiling and my net worth has skyrocketed since then. So if you're listening to the show, there's two things I want you to capture from today's show. One, this power and this idea of becoming your own bank. And then the second is how a small little item like an iPod shuffle can actually change your life. So I'll stop there and just say, Chris, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on. I can't wait to get into this one. Awesome. Well, we like to start with the difficult questions here. What's your favorite ice cream? Maple walnut. Maple walnut. That is, man. It's my favorite. Is that like a Northeastern thing? I've never even heard of that. No, you know, it's just growing up as a kid like that. My mom got maple walnut, uh, Perry's ice cream, and it was maple walnut. And it's just ever since then, like literally, it's hard to find. It's always been my favorite ice cream. I love it. I love it. So controversial topic here. Do you do toppings or no toppings? No toppings, man. None. It ruins the ice cream. There you go. There you go. Well, tell our listeners, what's the scoop? What do you do today? Yeah, I, I, it's very simple. I solve people's money problems by helping them be in control of their money. The one thing that they've been taught to do just the opposite of. Love it. Love it. So our, I like to start at the beginning, but before your real estate journey began, you had a couple of different uh, ups and downs in your career. And I kind of want you to explore a little bit of that. So where did your real estate journey begin? Take us back to Fat Man Clothing. Oh, gosh. Yeah. So that would take me back to when I, I was just a kid. I mean, grew up with you know a lower, lower middle class family raised by mom. And my mom always taught me to dream. So fat clothing came about when I was 16 years old. It was my very first company. And you know, I was an aspiring snowboarder at that time. I wanted to be a pro. That's all I wanted more than anything in the world is to be a pro snowboarder. So you needed money, you know, to get to the resorts. And I couldn't go to my family or my mom and ask for money to get lift tickets or snowboards. So I had to work and I worked on a farm, but at 16, I got a real job at a restaurant where most 16 year olds back then ended up. And the restaurant I landed was an Italian restaurant where they treated me like garbage. They literally degraded me so badly. I think I was clinically depressed and I'll never forget the day I came in and I said to the, you know, ripped right into me as soon as I got there. And I, I just looked at him and I said, I quit. Now, what I didn't know is that moment was pivotal because that's the moment where I quit trading hours for dollars. I came home. I told my mom thinking she was going to be mad. And I said, I, I'd like to start a clothing line in the basement. So fat clothing, P-H-A-T was formed right then and there. Got my DBA. I went right to my art teacher who me and him had printed t-shirts after school. And I said, hey, can I print a dozen t-shirts? 
on the, the presses and we started printing t-shirts and I started selling them out of my backpack. Then I started selling them along the way to, you know, snowboard contests. I'd stop at all the stores. So I'd, I'd leave a day early and I'd go to all the shops and I would, you know, either commission my stuff there, or I would actually take orders. And it was just a fun little learning experience and how I modeled it. I've always been good at mimicking things, right? So I'd look at all the other companies picking on uh, Volcom was like a, a startup back then. They're a giant publicly traded company now, but I followed everything they did and I just mimicked it. And then all of a sudden, when I was 17, I had three seamstresses working for me. I wasn't making a ton of money, enough to travel to my contest. And I got this idea. I'm like, you know, this is cool making t-shirts, but I need my own place. And I got the idea. I just need a store. So me and this guy, Steve, kind of came up with the idea of Fat Man Board Shops in the Lockport Mall, which is this tiny little mall. It doesn't even exist anymore. And uh, I needed 70 grand to start this. So that was my first real journey into money where like, you know, I had to find a large sum of it. And everybody told me no, that I was crazy. My father said, no, you should just get a job at back then it was uh, Harrison Radiator. And it was just like everywhere I went, it was just no, no, no. So I almost gave up on the dream. And my mom saw this and you know, we'll talk probably a lot about my mom, but she saw this happening. She had nothing, but in the divorce, she got the house, which was a two bedroom, 700 square foot house that I grew up in. And she said, well, what do we need to have this happen? And I said, well, the bank said I need this thing called collateral. And I told him I had a 1986 Buick, a K- I don't know what year, but a KTM 125. And I had a baseball card collection and said, no, son, we need something a little more significant. And uh, so she put her house on the line so that I could open Fat Man Board Shops on November of 1994. That store is still open today. I sold it in 2010, but you know the, the friends that I sold it to are still crushing it with it. And it's really cool. It's 20 plus years in existence. Yeah. If the bank only knew what those baseball cards would be worth in today's dollars. <laughs> now, now you look at like Gary Vee and all that slinging baseball cards, if they only knew. But I, I think like that's going to be the, the theme of your story, essentially, is when you've run up against a wall, you found a way through it. And there's probably people out there that are listening to this that maybe don't have the teenage ignorance of like, let's just jump right in and figure it out. But they do face that societal pressure of no, no, no. How did you get over that? How did you decide that this was something you wanted to do and that you shouldn't listen to the other people saying no? You know, that's a good question. I can answer that. Why I know now why I did it. But back then, I think it was just I wasn't willing to quit. You know, when people would tell me no, like professional snowboarding, I told a lot of people through school and everywhere else, all my teachers, I wanted to be a pro snowboarder. And it was always just like, kids, you'll shoot your eye out, you know, like that movie. But I, I heard that every time I heard a no, it fueled me. I mean, snowboarding, I didn't have big resorts, but we had a country club not far from my house. And I would go there and build jumps out of the sand trap. And I'd get so exhausted because I'd have like two hours until it got dark after school that I, I figured out, hey, listen, if I want to get more hits in and master these tricks more, I have to get in better shape. So I'd go in my backyard, run up and down, I swear to God, with boots on, I'd run up and down the backyard, which we had almost two acres in the snow just to get in shape so I could get more laps at that country club. So I think like that right there is the reason I just kept pushing. And, you know, my father, you know, the things that went on with that were pretty, you know, impactful. Uh, I think the movie uh, Cats in the Cradle, you know, that I sent him that single. And I think him not supporting me at this pivotal time in my life was the reason why I never wanted to quit. 
And uh, there was there was that, you know, those couple of people in my life, my mom, who I call the unconditional one, she didn't want to see me not live my dream because she never got to live hers. And I had teachers of all the people, right? I didn't have a lot of people that were my cheerleaders, but I had a, an accounting teacher. And I also had that art teacher who always told me to keep going. And those couple people are what pushed me through. Yeah. And I think that's key to a, a lot of success in life is really having mentors or people that will, you can lean on in difficult times. And it's such an interesting part of being a man and culture, right? That you, you feel like you can't reach out and ask for help, but really it's those people that kind of propel you forward. You had the clothing line, you're a professional snowboarder, but then you got into real estate and working at financial advisoring company. How did you make that transition from uh, slinging clothes to financial advising? I know it's a weird one, right? Well, it happened uh, in the early 2000s when the planes hit the towers or when the dot-com crash hit. You know, So when that recession hit, I didn't even know what the word recession meant. I had a couple stores going. I was snowboarding professional. I was living the perfect life. Then all of a sudden, my retail store started decreasing in sales quickly. I mean, and, and all of a sudden, I was like, holy cow, I can't make ends meet. I was somewhat highly leveraged at that time because we were expanding. And I said, all right, well, I have to get a job. So my friend Mike worked at Little Caesars Pizza and I went in there and thank God I went in there and I applied for a job to deliver pizzas at night so that I could like pay my my truck payment and things and they they weren't hiring. So I put my resume out and the only people that called me about my resume were financial advisory companies. And I interviewed with two. The one was this big fancy Wall Street firm and I'd never even put a suit on. My grandma got me a suit, taught me how to tie Actually, it might have been a zip-up tie. Actually, going back, it was a zip-up tie. <laughs> and he he's going through his whole pitch, and like he loved the fact that I was self-employed. He loved the fact that I I didn't really understand this whole nine-to-five thing because that was a lot of what he was asking. Is you know, so what time do you start work and what time do you go home? I'm like, my store opens at ten, and I'm there till nine thirty at night, and that's my life. And he slides his Porsche keys across the the table you know, at me. And he says, well, this is what you should be doing because this is what you can expect. And I'm like, oh, I'd like one of those. So I ended up taking the job there and that's how I got into financial advisory. And I thought it was going to be a temporary thing. I swear, like then nobody could have told me I'm going to be a, a successful financial advisor. I'm like, no, this is just to get me past this little hump that I'm going through right now. And uh, what ended up happening actually is I ended up loving it. The challenge of like being around all these people, I was in the bullpen and seeing all these big advisors on the out, outer offices and being like, I want that. And I just fed into it. And I realized that these advisors, this is the funniest thing. This is exactly how I did what I did. And any, anybody can just pick this up and run with it. I watched them make a lot of money, drive fancy cars, big houses, because they'd have these little parties. But then I'd watch them leave for lunch every single day. I'd watch them usually, you know, get there maybe nine, 10 o'clock and they were gone by four on the golf course. Now I didn't really articulate golf and business, but to me, I'm just like, Hey, listen, if I want to get where they're at faster, all I need to do is get here at seven or eight. And I just need to stay till six or seven at night because people are already, they're at work, you know, by the time these guys are on the golf course, if I start calling people at five 30 and six o'clock or seven o'clock at night, they'll answer the phone and I can get appointments. I kid you not. That's exactly what I did. I did what everybody else was unwilling to do. And because of that, I became one of the top financial advisors for that firm in, in those early years. And uh, 2006, I did my first flip. I think I saw a TV show, Property Wars, if I'm not mistaken, that was the one. 
guy flipped a house in 23 minutes. And I'm like, that's cool. So I, I tried to flip a house. It only took me a year, not 23 minutes, but uh, I flipped that first house and I was supposed to make 40 grand, but I made, I think like six or eight. I did it with my best friend. The next year I did another one. And then 2008 came about and uh, it, something weird was going on and everything happens for a reason. My lease was ending and the, I didn't like the landlord because he wanted to jack my rent up. And I said, you know what? Two buildings down, there was this dilapidated paint store. It had been sitting there for years empty. And it, there was a big for sale. And I called and it was like 300 and some grand. And I'm like, all right, it's going to need another 300 to get it to be a strip mall. And I had, a, I just ventured into it. I'm like, I've done a couple of real estate deals. Why don't I convert that into a three unit strip mall and have everybody else pay the mortgage? And I have free rent for my new flagship fat man store. And everything was going great. I borrowed money from a hard money lender, somebody I shouldn't have taken money from, but nobody else was stupid enough to give me that much money. And uh, then just like a Mack truck hitting you, the Great Recession hit. And it brought me to my knees, man. This was the first, not the first time that I've, I'd failed because I'd failed at other businesses, but this is the first time that literally... I thought it was all going to be over. I literally started having fears of my life because this guy that lent me the money, I was about one payment away from never being able to pay him again. And I told him this, and I don't think he was just planning on taking the strip mall back. But I went home and my girlfriend who just moved in, Larissa, I said to her, I said, sweetie, I need you to help me pay the mortgage. And I need you to help me pay the utilities. And by the way, my friend Pete is going to move in that bedroom down the hall. And then my other friend, Jessica, is going to move into the bedroom upstairs. Any questions? I didn't say it exactly like that, but probably the same way. And I thought, all right, well, if she leaves, she leaves. But if she stays, maybe she'll help me make it through. And I think she kind of liked me. Yeah, and that's uh, that's how I made it through 2008. It wasn't easy. Were, were you funding some of those flips through the business or were you um, holding properties that you had already renovated and couldn't like get rid of them during 2008? No, you know, so how I did it and into the whole next section of my life, um, I was borrowing money from a local community bank uh, called First Niagara. They're, they're now Key Bank and they got merged, but uh, I was borrowing money from them in my personal name. And then I was using my 401k because I had some money in there. I was taking loans from that. I was taking loans. I had obviously I was a financial advisor, so I had a couple of whole life policies. Just New York Life was the company and, you know, just a couple New York Life whole life policies. And I would max those out and take the loans. And that's how I funded the rehab and the 20% down. Uh, I, I had no idea what the heck private money was or a hard money lender. Like outside of that guy that lent me the money, you know, he was just a local guy, a bunch of, of attorneys and people that I shouldn't have been monkeying with, but we, we won't go there. I, I had no other ways to get money. That's all I did. Yep. Yep. So what happened then? Because I think you're about to go into where uh, the, the bank stalled your credit. And I want to touch on that a little bit, but what happened then? Well, I mean, that was 2009 to 14. Warren Buffett said, buy low, right? Buy low, sell high, and don't lose money. So I, real estate was plummeting. And I'm like, all right, let's buy some real estate. This is what all my clients that have money own. They own a bunch of these house things. So let's get a bunch of these apartments. And I did. I started buying them. I got up to 36 units by 2014. It was tough. I was taking every penny I was making as an advisor, rolling it into rehab. I had a couple lines of credit that I was maxing out and just everything was just moving, you know, and just trying to get these things done. I brought my 37th unit to that same bank, to that same loan officer. And almost immediately when I brought the deal, he said, no. And he, I said, Greg, like what, what's going on here? And he's just like, well, you don't fit the little square box called debt to income ratio. I'm like, but all the rents are coming in. I'm making more money than I was a couple of years ago. And how do I not fit? 
I didn't understand the math or the logic of how banks did. But long story short is they wouldn't give me that mortgage. They froze my lines of credit and they literally, it's just, you know, they, they cut me off and I had to, I had nowhere to go. I couldn't get the units done. I just couldn't make it. So I ended up selling off all 36 units, but that spiraled. And as I'm doing that, things got really bad. Uh, and it wasn't because I wasn't doing okay financially. I had sold off the retail stores by this point for, no, I, I sold the strip mall off in 16, but I sold everything off. And in doing that, I just, I was so broke. I was so highly leveraged. You know, I, some of these properties I had just bought and now I had to sell them. So I was major losses. And uh, I remember I just, I plummeted to a whole new level of low and I was blaming everybody else. I was blaming everything else. I wasn't ever taking responsibility of like, Hey, Chris, maybe you just didn't know what you don't know. Maybe there's something you were missing. No, I, I was in a very weird place in my life. Ego. I was, I had a big ego because, you know, financial advisors, when they get to that level, they, they build egos and I'll be the first to be transparent. I had an ego, but that ego just got smashed. And when that happened, I just, I just wanted to just, I seriously, I think I just wanted to drive my truck off a cliff. You know, those days that that crossed my mind, but I never did. Thank God. But yeah, that's, that's where it all tumbled down. That was the worst period of time in my life. And that's actually after we sold all those properties, the dream house that me and Larissa had bought, she was my fiance. Then we ended up having to sell that and things really fell apart from that point. Yeah. I want to, I think our story is pretty similar in this situation in the sense of like, you get to a certain point in your career where you think you're the perfect client for a bank. You make great money. You've got assets. You've got supplemental income coming in from rental units. I was to that point too, where I walked into the bank and they were like, you don't fit the square box anymore because it was the Fannie and Freddie. Well, then I took out a line of credit and then I, I then they said, well, we can't extend you lines of credit anymore. And if you're listening to this show right now, it's the end of July, but I plan on this show coming out soon. Wells Fargo just eliminated all personal lines of credit. So imagine that you can have one to two units on a personal line of credit. Wells Fargo freezes it and tells you you've got 30 days to pay all of that. So we're going to jump into the next segment of like becoming your own bank and how you do that. I, I want people to understand that if you don't control your own processes of having your money uh, under your own banking structure, then somebody else can take that away at any point. And so how did you how did you then evolve into becoming your own bank? And maybe you could describe a little bit about what it is first. Yeah, it, it's actually simple. I was at this super low point. I was living in one of my apartment buildings because I had nothing else. I even sold all my furniture. And I remember I got a postcard and it came and I'm reading it. I almost threw it out. It was to come to this three day seminar to learn how to flip houses. But on the back, it said, show up and we'll give you a free iPod shuffle. Now I was running a lot and I did not have the money to buy an iPod shuffle. So I'm like, oh, I just got to go and sit there and then I'll get a free iPod shuffle. So I had nothing to lose. So off I went for my iPod shuffle. And you know, I was so bored at this event, you know, you could tell that they were just pitching this big thing that they were going to sell. And, but then I remember these two guys go up on the stage, Greg and Mike, and you could tell they were very successful. Actually, Mike had a show on A&E, like a flipping show. So I'm like, this guy's the real deal. And the other guy, you could just tell, like he was something like there was something about the way he spoke, the way he handled himself. This guy was a multi, multi-millionaire. And he kept talking about how he was the bank. I had no concept and no understanding of what that meant. I'm like, oh, this guy's just got millions of dollars and he's just lending it to this guy for his flips on the TV show. But 
they started talking deeper about what this actually was that they were doing with money. And I perked right up. I'm the financial guy in the room, right? I Heck, I even think I wore a suit. I have no idea why, but I'm listening. And all of a sudden they're talking about things I'd never, ever heard about. Now, everybody has to remember, like at this point, I'm probably 13, 14 years as a pretty high level advisor, making roughly 250 to $300,000 a year. So, you know, I was like the big dog in, in the firm I was at. I was probably not a big dog in the grand scheme of advisors, but in my own little realm, I was. So they're talking about these things and I'm just thinking, wait a second, like, I didn't even know that was possible. I didn't even know that you could do that. And, and, Listen, like I was at New York Life, folks, like for the beginning, at this point, I actually was transitioning out of New York Life to an RIA, but I was like at a very big company that did a lot of life insurance. And these guys are talking about, and they didn't call it life insurance by no means. They called it private banking. And I'm just thinking, what is this private bank thing? So that was the first glimpse I had. And at that moment, I started questioning everything. I went to all the guys in my office and I said, you ever hear this? Oh, don't listen to that. That's, that's not real. You know? And I'm thinking, oh yeah, you're, you're right. It's too good to be true. But I dove in and I started getting around their circle because I realized my circle was always going to keep me where I was at. So I'm like, how do I get around Mike and Greg? So I befriended them. Greg started lending me some money on some of my real estate deals I was doing because we were flipping a few houses and I got to know him. And then I got to circle around with all of the people he was with which put me in front of people like Tark and Christina. And they were all doing the same thing. And as I started going down this, so this is going from 14 to let's just say 16, I was doing masterminds and everything else. And I would, I was good enough with money to talk about it. You know, I could have a conversation with somebody that was pretty wealthy. So I started asking them, so what do you do with money? How do you get, you know, how does your money work? And I, what I realized, I'm thinking all these guys are investing in stocks. None of them were really messing with stocks. They just weren't, that wasn't their game, but they were all, doing the same things. And I'm just like, this is insane. All these extremely successful people. And listen, there's a couple billionaires in there. They were all doing the same thing. And I started thinking to myself, if this is what these guys are doing, it's 180 degrees different than what I've been taught all these years as a high level advisor. So there's something wrong. And I I mean, I'll just, that brings me right to the current day because nothing's changed. Ever since that moment, when I realized that what I was doing was different than what the wealthy were doing, I had to crack the code. I had to figure out what is it that the wealthy know that we don't and why do they do things differently? And uh, that brings me right up to the current day. I've literally studied the wealthy for almost a decade now and studied their patterns and what they do. And it's miraculous because it's not complicated. Everybody's like, oh, they're wealthy. That's why they have the money. No, they all started right where we did with no money. And they climbed their way up, but they learned things and they applied those things. And the biggest thing was, is, you know, I I boiled it down. This is kind of my little thing is what the wealthy do different starts with just changing one thing. And that one thing is where their money goes first. They don't want to put banks in control of their money because just like me and you were talking, right? The bank took our control away when the bank was like, oh, we're done with you. We're not going to give you any more money. Gone, done. And then Wall Street, I had watched my money make money and I'd watched it all disappear in 2008. And I, I also in 2011, you know, a lot of people don't even remember the EU crisis. Mm-hmm. That was a doozy. Like a lot of people are like, oh, what was that? Well, I'll tell you, as an advisor, that was a bad one. So I had watched money fluctuate and evaporate in the markets. And I really wanted something different. And uh, that's, that's how I learned about this, man. It was at a cheesecake factory in Salt Lake City, sitting with that Mike guy from that event. And he started unwinding it to me and telling me about it. And I remember listening to this crap and I'm just like, Mike, it doesn't work that way. I'm the advisor. It doesn't work that way. And he leans into me and I'll never forget it. 
And he says, if it doesn't work that way, Chris, how have I been lending you money on all these deals from this? And I was, I was speechless. And I'm like, tell me, tell me how. And he says, I can't, you got to call this guy, Brent. So I call this guy, Brent, super excited. I'm like, Brent, Brent, tell me about this thing, this private banking. I, I'm an advisor. I know all about it. And I just don't know how to do it. And he says, okay, you got to watch a 90 minute video before we talk. And I said, no, 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 Brent, you don't understand. I'm an advisor. I don't need to watch a 90 minute video. I just want to like, just tell me how he says, I understand, but it's a prerequisite to the call. You got to watch this 90 minute video Sunday morning, big cup of coffee, watching that 90 minute video, everything unfolded right before me. And I knew what it was. And that's the moment where it all changed right then and there. Yeah. I think there's something you mentioned. It's, it's the wealthy. Yes. Some of them inherit it, but a lot of people created something and then became wealthy and where they put their money and how they leverage it is different than how we are taught. And the second point I think is money always has to be moving. I use this analogy of like a stream versus a pond. If I think of a pond, I think of like algae. I don't want to, I don't want to fish in it. It just sounds disgusting. Whereas a stream, I think of it as fresh, living, cold. I would just stick my mouth in there and and drink from that directly. Um, But I want to talk about like the structure of this bank. So first off, tell us, you, you mentioned that it's life insurance is there's a difference between whole life insurance and term insurance. Maybe start our listeners there with what's the difference between whole life and term. And then let's, let's sure. advance from there. I mean, it's, it's right in the name term insurance as Dave Ramsey and Susie Orman love, you know, it's the cheapest, if you will, it's commoditized life insurance. But when you buy a term policy, although the costs are very low, it is for a term of time, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. So if you outlive the term, it's if it, you rented your insurance all the year, all those years. Now I'm not saying anything bad about term. I own a whole bunch of term insurance and I love term insurance. Matter of fact, we use term insurance on almost every policy we build today, but you know, we'll get into that. So then what is whole life? Well, the standard whole life, like the stuff you'd buy from your brother-in-law or the insurance agent, like I used to be in the early years, that is for your whole life. It's not renting your insurance. Think of it like a house, right? You can rent a house and you can live in it. And then all of a sudden you're not in control. Your landlord can kick you out and you're always just paying for the right to have a place to live. But then you buy a house and over the years you build equity, you pay down the mortgage, you're building equity through appreciation. That equity building is is a whole life. Okay. You're not renting the insurance. You have the insurance for your entire life, but also there's a cash value component that is building cash over a period of time. Now we talked offline about our old whole life policies. I want to be very clear now that we understand that term is like renting and whole life is like owning your house and building equity in it. What we do and what we use for these privatized banking systems is absolutely positively not the whole life you think you know about. It is so different, so different in the way it's built, constructed, engineered. The only way I can explain that is, you know, I, I don't know how many of your listeners, you know, follow racing, car racing, but if you took like Ken Block, you know, when he was on right racing for Ford, he raced the Ford Focus. That was his rally car. And that thing went like 120 miles an hour sideways in full control. It's a pretty miraculous machine. But a Ford Focus, all of us can go to the Ford dealership and roll a Ford Focus off the lot. Does that mean it's going to go 120 around a turn in control? No, you'll probably wrap yourself around anything that it gets in its way because it's not going to do it. But they're both Ford Focuses, right? Yeah, but the one was specially designed and engineered to do a task, and that was to go very fast, very controlled around corners like Ken Block drives it but it's still a Ford Focus. Well, think of that in a whole life. 
whole lives aren't created equal. One can be designed and engineered for a completely different use, like what we use it for, banking. And the other one is just life insurance. That's the Ford Focus that rolls off the lot. So you have to understand that contrary to the Dave Ramseys, the Susie Ormans, and the other gurus out there that think they know what they don't know, this plan is designed totally different. I didn't come up with it. Brent didn't come up with it. Mike didn't come up with it. It's been around for hundreds of years. The Rockefellers and the Rothschilds, if you really trace it back, are the ones that started using life insurance companies as a banking system. And I mean, it's very well documented. They didn't trust banks. Yep. So uh, just to recap there, term insurance is like you're renting something. I own term today. You own term today. It is because we want to pay as little as possible to get the most amount of death benefit. Think of this. If you have somebody, whether they're an offspring, a spouse or a charity that you want to give to, this is the cheapest way that if you die, you can leave your legacy and it has its place. Whole life, however, is every dollar you're spending in is that whole life policy. As long as you keep it current, you own that policy for the rest of your life, as long as you keep paying for it. What Chris is trying to say also is there's two different types of whole life. They're still called whole life. There's ones designed for the death benefit, which if you're designing for the death benefit, go ahead and buy term insurance. And there's ones designed for specialized banking, which is completely different than if you just walk into your uh, college roommates uh, and uh, financial advising office, and he writes you a policy. So you want to make sure that if you want to leverage this, you get with someone like Chris that understands how to uh, structure these for maximum benefits. All right, Chris, now I'm sold, right? I want to learn more about the banking aspect of this. What is? What do you mean when you say the banking asset in, of this? So I'm paying premiums, it's building up cash value, what, what, how can I use that to go fund real estate deals or any other investments? Yeah, see, I'm not sold already because all that stuff sounds great, but it sounds pretty stinking boring. And you know what? Whole life insurance, even these specially designed ones that I'm talking about, they are boring. But here is why the wealthy use them. One thing the wealthy don't do that we have been taught to do our entire lives is they do not trade hours for dollars. They've learned that by trading hours for dollars, they cap themselves to a certain income. Now that income can be high by all intents and purposes, but to build real wealth and to keep that wealth, you actually have to have your money work for you. Your money always has to be in motion. And you know, it's very simple to see how this works. All of us go to work you know, in one capacity or the other. Some of you flip houses, some of you work in tech, some of you, you know, trade hours for dollars and that's okay. But you do it to earn this. I'm holding a hundred dollar bill in my hand. So let's just say we traded an hour for this hundred dollars. Well, the, what is the first thing you do with this hundred dollars when you earn it? You give up. Can, well, <laughs> let's just pretend the tax. Yeah, that's right. We can't get away from that. We're going to all die and we're going to pay taxes. So those are the givens. But what do we do with the money we make? Well, you've been taught what to do with it. You put it in the bank, right? You go to your traditional bank and you say, Mr. And Mrs. Teller, here's my $100. And what does your teller do? Do they put it in a little box in the back with your name on it in that vault that's empty, just so you know? Absolutely not. They take your $100, they give you a receipt. And this $100 then goes out the door in those little glass cubicles. They move your money. The only people that park and let money sit are us. There's not a business in the world that does that because every business in the world would be out of business if they didn't move their money. But yet that's what we do. We park our money there. We put our money in 401ks, you know, where that money sits for the next five, 10 or 15 years. We literally do things with money that we would never ever do with things that money buys. I mean, hear me out. Would you ever go and buy your dream car? And then just as you're about, you saved all this money up, you buy your dream car and they give you the keys to your car. And then you're just about to get into it. You're like, oh, hold on a second. I can't drive this car. 
I got to wait five, 10 or 15 years. Would you ever buy your dream house with your spouse? And right as you're about to just walk in for the first time that you own it, you say, sweetie, we can't move in. We got to wait five, 10 or 15 years to move into this house. I want you to always remember that when you're putting money in your 401k, because we do things with money. We would just never do with things that money buy. That's what the wealthy understand. So why this stupid whole life policy? And I am being honest, like why this stupid whole life? Why isn't there's got to be a sexier vehicle out there that can do this? The answer is there's not. Because the insurance companies, and these are not normal insurance companies, these are giant mutually owned insurance companies that have paid dividends for hundreds of years. There's only about 10 of them out there that can do this. If I take this $100, and I'm just going to use the same example, right? I earned 100 And let's say I want to deposit this money into the insurance company because the insurance company is guaranteeing me an interest rate contractually that is about four times higher than what the bank is paying me right now. And then the insurance company says, hey, based on our, our loss in claims, you know, we're going to pay a dividend every year, which is a return of the premiums that we don't use. We're going to give that back in a dividend. So right now, you can earn 6% in these policies as of 2021, just being transparent. So that's way better than the bank. But now why would I put it in this whole life? Well, here's why. I put the 100 in there. Now, let's just say the 100 is in the account, but an opportunity comes to me. And I'm like, oh gosh, I shouldn't have put that money in that policy. No big deal with the way they're designed. Let's just say I need $50 of that $100. Now, don't get caught up in the numbers, folks. This is just an example because I'm holding $100 bills. So let's just say I put 100 in and I want to take 50 back out. Great. I take the 50 back out. Now, if that was your bank account and you put 100 in and you took 50 out, how much is left in your bank account earning interest? 50. That's right. 50 bucks. Simple math, right? Chris, uh, try to challenge me next time. Well, in the insurance company, how much do you think is left in your policy? I'll tell you, it's $100. Well, that can't be. That sounds too good to be true. Whose $50 are you holding then? I'm holding the insurance company's $50. They gave this $50 to me from their general account as a loan. Oh, I knew there was a catch. I just knew it. It's a loan. I, I'm, I don't want to create more debt. Well, what if I told you the insurance company doesn't ever ask you for that loan back? Matter of fact, they don't care if you ever pay that loan back because that loan was an advance of your death benefit. The insurance company just said, hey, we got a, that, this death benefit that we got to pay out someday. If you want to use that money while you're living, sure, we'll, we'll let you take loans up to the amount that you have in your account, which in this example is 100 bucks. So I got $50 on a loan that I don't have to pay back. Sure, I got to pay interest on the loan to the insurance company, but the math works, trust me. 6% on your money you're making. Maybe you're paying five on the loan. That's better than any bank I've seen. Plus, I'm holding the money. So what am I going to do with this $50? Well, let's just say I owed Visa $50 and I was paying Visa 10% or 20% interest on that. So I take this 50 bucks and I pay off Visa and I take the $10 that I used to give to Visa every single month because I had to, can't have them hurt my credit. Now I don't owe Visa that. What if I just take that $10 and I change the name on the check and it no longer says Visa, it says Chris Noggles Bank. And I take that $10 and I just put it right back over here in that specially designed and engineered whole life. All I, if, if all of you can just envision a circle, that's all I did. My money started on the left side of that circle where it is sitting, earning uninterrupted compound interest. I simply then moved my money around that circle to the other side where my money is leaking, where I'm losing money every month, which is credit cards, car payments, all those things. And then I paid that off one at a time, but then I didn't just stop there. Most people would just stop there. I take the amount I was giving to the debtors, to the credit card, $10, and then I move that money back around the bottom side of the circle and it ends back in my account. Do you realize in doing that, that is called moving money. We just made money twice. 
we made the equivalent of, let's just use simple math, 1%, the six minus the five on the money in my account. And then I made the 20% that I was paying to Visa because I recaptured the 20% that I was giving away. How many times can you do that in your lives, folks? Maybe you're like, oh, Chris, I don't have any debt. Great. Well, are you buying stocks? What do you invest in? Real estate, private loans, like crypto, Bitcoin, Ethereum? What are you, what are you buying? Your money's coming from somewhere, but I bet you any money it's coming from that traditional bank account where you're not making any money because the bank is moving your money and making 400 to 1300% more than you are, according to BauerFinancial.com. So why don't you just mimic what the bank does? Find a machine that you can move your money through to earn uninterrupted compound interest. The most powerful thing in the financial world, period, says Albert Einstein. And he says, those that understand it, earn it. I just showed you how to earn it. And then he says, those, those that don't, pay it. The people that don't understand compound interest are most of us that are paying everybody else the money that we work so hard for. Keep that money in your family and you all of a sudden start treating your money the way the wealthy do, the way the Rockefellers, the Rothschilds, the Walt Disneys, the Ray Crocs, all the way up to current times. This is what they use, folks. But they don't say, oh, I own whole life. No. They say, I have a privatized bank that I run all of my wealth and capital through. Oh, what's that? Most people just never ask the next question. Yeah, I, I think the key point there is the uninterrupted compound interest. What you were talking about with the visa, I was going to go there. Hey, I don't have any debt. How can I leverage this? And it's as simple as when I went to the bank and said, hey, I'm thinking about buying this, this rental house. They said, sorry, you don't fit in the Fannie and Freddie anymore. And I took out a line of credit and they froze the line of credit. And they said, you can't take that line of credit anymore. In the whole life policies, it's guaranteed that the insurance company writes policy owners loans. So I just go into my whole life policy, pull out $100,000 buy a rental property. I'm paying 5% on that uh, $100,000. I'm making 12% on the rental property. Take it back and pay back myself with the, the arbitrage of the difference. Absolutely. It's beautiful when you understand the concept. How do, you, how do you see other people leveraging this policy? So I know one, for example, is like Walt Disney World. When he went to go build Walt Disney World, he didn't want to go to the banks and ask for a loan because the banks would be like, why are you taking out multi-millions of dollars of, property, of, of loans to uh, develop land in Florida? That would have ruined his whole business model. You've seen Ray Kroc, you've mentioned the Rockefellers, but in your personal uh, group, how are you seeing others kind of leverage their policy to make money? Well, it's, it's a lot of ways. I mean, this is commonly called the infinite banking concept. That's the process we're talking about. So today, how I use most of mine is I lend it out. So I'm a private lender, just like you know Greg was, just like Mike was. I, I learned from them and I said, okay, well, they're making 10 to 12% on me and they're owning nothing but controlling everything because they're in full control. If I don't pay them, they take the property. And I love that. That was a Rockefeller statement. Own nothing but control everything. I never understood it until now. So I lend my money out. And a lot of people in our group lend money through you know, either our private money club, which we have. It's just like a club of lenders and borrowers. So we lend money through there. I charge 12% on my money. So I take a loan from my policy, 100,000 bucks. I lend it over to here to this guy's company. This guy is buying a rental or doing a flip. And then he then pays me 12% interest. I take that interest. I put it back in my policy. And if I need a little extra money, I just skim the arbitrage off. I mean, mm -hmm. maybe I put 6% back in my policy and I keep the other 6% to go blow it. I don't know, to have fun, to go snowboarding in Colorado, or maybe when Canada finally opens, go back up to Baldface and hop on a helicopter. I mean, listen, like we all want to live a good life. 
I'm not saying that like you have to not enjoy it. If you don't enjoy it, you'll never ever be happy. Even when you are multimillionaires or billionaires, you'll be miserable. You got to enjoy the ride. And the best way to enjoy the ride in any market cycle, including what I think is coming, which might be the next great depression. If your money is constantly moving, you have a much better chance of weathering any market condition, the good, the bad, the sideways. It doesn't make a difference when your money's in motion, moving, it can't be interrupted. And also don't forget your money never, ever stopped earning interest. And people don't, you and I do, because we know what this looks like, but they don't comprehend that yet until they see the numbers. And folks, everybody needs to understand that this isn't a sprint. This is not some get rich quick thing. This is going to take you years to build your banking system. And, and if that's not good enough for you, well, keep putting your money in Bitcoin and stocks and hope I wish you the best. But this is going to take time. But while you're building your wealth, you will never, ever stop earning interest on your money. I think of it as like an airplane, right? This is uh, Nelson Nash talked about it. Brent talks about it. Uh, so many people out there are trying to, you know, operate inside the environment that they're in right now. And they try to make, let's use it airplanes, right? If you want your airplane to go faster, what do you do? You make it, you modify the engine, you do a bunch of stuff to make it go 10 miles an hour faster and it costs you a lot of money, but you take off. And if there's a 10 mile an hour headwind, your plane isn't going any faster because you're in the wrong environment. What would, wouldn't it just make more sense to fly your airplane in the right environment? Let's just say in a tailwind, where there's a 10 mile an hour tailwind. Now your plane's going 110 miles an hour and your plane only goes hundred. It's because you got something working in your favor. I like my money to operate in an environment where I have a perpetual tailwind. And that perpetual tailwind is nothing more than what Albert Einstein talked about, uninterrupted compound interest. And every penny of every dollar of my money is always for the rest of my life without me working harder, longer, without me taking on risk and without me doing anything different. My money is always going to have that. That's it. And and I think uh, one of the comments that's coming to my mind right now is the wealthy get wealthy, not because of how much they accumulate. Usually it's about how fast they can spend the money, right? Mm -hmm. So if it's growing in one place and they're earning interest in another, now it's growing twice. They're, they're cycling their money. Well, Chris, this is phenomenal. I, I want to geek out. You can see my smile on my face and my head shaking because there's so many different ways I want to take this conversation, but I'm going to transition us now to the last five questions, which is the five toppings. Our first one, though, is what is your favorite book? And I see a couple books that you wrote in the background. So besides those, what is your favorite book? Think and Grow Rich. Okay. By Napoleon why, Hill. Why do you why, like that one? I, I've read that book so many times. And every time I get something more out of it, I, I like it because that's been my life and I never understood it. I never understood those laws, those universal laws that he talks about in there. And now I understand that. So now everything became crystallized in my mind. And I'm once you understand why and you know why things happen in your life or in your past, and you understand like the the simple law, which is what he talks about, you know, if you give, you get, and there's so much more to it. Then all of a sudden you look into the future and you're saying, All right, that I want to live my perfect day every day. And all I got to do is envision it dream it, understand what every moment of that day looks like and reverse engineer it and just stay focused on it. And it will happen because it's already happened in my past. So what's to say that it can't? And if it's a law like gravity, dude, go jump off a, a big building. Tell me how the law of gravity works. Oh, I'm sorry. You won't be able to because you're going to be a pancake. That's how that book operates. The second one is I believe the person you will become in 10 years is directly correlated to the habits that you do every single day. What is something that you do every single day? Okay. The very first thing I do when my eyes open, I, I'm barely not even awake. I roll out of my bed. I hit my knees and I put my hands together and I thank God for this day. Awesome. Our third one is what's the best piece of advice you've ever received? 
give more. Give your best stuff away for free and stop asking questions of what you get. Because if you give, you will get, and you just can't think about the get. It's just, that's another one of those stupid laws. Yeah. It's one of those things. The more I give, the more I seem, the more seems to come flowing to me. And I I don't even mean for it. I just like to be a good human. Uh, Absolutely correct. The fourth thing is what, what's the one, what's the thing you're most proud of in your life? God, there's a lot of things I, I guess I could say I'm proud of, but the one thing I would say I'm really proud of is that I never left my mom. You know, my mom's all, you know, I'm all I that she has. I'm an only child and she never remarried. So the simple fact that I didn't chase the things that I should have, I, sh- I never moved to Colorado or, or Utah chasing, you know, the snowboarding career. I always stayed here so that I was with my mom. And even now we were moving to Florida and we had a house in Florida. We were going to move. And then Larissa got pregnant with Viviana. And now we're here and I see my mom light up every day. She's holding Vivi or playing with Vivi. I mean, that right there is my greatest accomplishment, but it's just, you know, I didn't, I didn't selfishly go where I wanted to go. I stayed and made things work in this environment to make somebody else happen. Happy. Yeah. We were talking, we're both mama's boys. We were both talking beforehand. There's this one picture I have where I'm, I'm an Ironman triathlete and I was racing the world championships and I was going to give my mom a hug and she's got this big smile on her face, ready to receive the hug. And like that, that picture can motivate me. It can bring me to tears. It can just like get me going. I I don't know. It's just so many different emotions. I'm glad Um, we share that. Yeah. Yeah. Chris, uh, the, the last one is, if you could sit down and eat a bowl of ice cream with anyone dead or alive, who would it be and why? Wow. You know, I've probably JFK. I, I'm not going to lie. That's probably who I'd want to eat a bowl of ice cream with. Why JFK? It's just the mysteries around the Kennedy family and the things that they know and the things that I don't know that I want to know. Yeah. Just bowl of ice cream. I can get enough questions out to understand some of those things. And uh, I just think he was a remarkable person. It's funny you mentioned that because I was uh, watching the show the other day that was talking about how World War II shaped seven generations of presidents, seven presidents and the generations of uh, leaders. And he was one of them. They did a whole segment on it. It's, it's super interesting. Um, well, this is great. How can people find out more about you? Where, where could we send them to? It's very easy. Just go to my website, chrisnoggle.com. Everything I do is free right there. And just like I had to many, many years ago, There's a 90 minute video on there. And if you can't watch 90 minutes, there's a 10 part video series. I really urge you, if you even like anything we talked about, watch that 90 minute video and then set up a call with me and I will answer all your questions. And I promise you, I promise you that 90 minute video will change your entire financial future. And I'll double down on that. Please watch the video because it's hard to understand this audioly. You have to see a visual of what Chris is talking about to truly understand the cycle of money. So we're going to send that and we'll link that in the show notes for everybody. But Chris, we'd love to have you back on to nerd out a little bit more, but thanks again for joining. You're welcome. It was my honor. Thank you for listening to Ice Cream with Investors. If you like what we serve you here, it would mean the world to me if you would like, subscribe, and leave a review on your favorite podcast app.